I'm like, okay, no one's invested here for 20 years. This area of the market's in the dumps. I've already bought four properties. How can I de-risk these properties? Well, I'll just buy everything, right? I'll apply a monopoly effect, buy everything in a two-mile radius, do heavy value add on all these properties, and not wait for the market to appreciate Mm -hmm. and to revitalize. I'll revitalize it myself. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today on the show, I have a really interesting guest, Nikolai Ray. So Nikolai is the CEO of Emrex, and he's a professor in real estate financial engineering. And we're going to talk to him later on the show about what exactly is real estate financial engineer, and I'm definitely interested to learn more about it. He also has over $10 billion in analysis, underwriting, and transactions. And the interesting thing about Nikolai is that he purchased over 30 apartment buildings in the last 15 months alone. And of course, we're going to ask him how he did it and what was the process involved and all that good stuff. Another interesting fun fact about Nikolai is that he's a former professional hockey player. He's also a very proud father of four, and he splits his time between Montreal, Canada and Miami. I would like to welcome Nikolai to the show. Hey, Nikolai. Hey, Ali. How's it going? All is well. All is well. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me as a guest. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And I told Nikolai before we started recording that I've seen him on social media a lot and I really appreciated his style. I like sponsors and investors that are writing, you know, how things really are and, you know, no BS, just here's what I see, here's how things, you know, are. And I recognize, you know, that aspect in your communication on social media. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. So before we dive into our asset strategy and process discussion, would really love to learn how does a hockey player find himself in real estate? Oh, man, that's a pretty crazy question. It's pretty packed. So, I mean, I've always had a passion for mathematics. I come actually from a, my father was half Bengali from the North Sea of India and half British. So my grandfather was an engineer. My great uncles were Nobel Prize nominees in physics. And so I grew up in mathematics. Funny story is I actually grew up quite poor in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. even though I'm a Canadian. And living in LA, I always dreamed about becoming a hockey player because Wayne Gretzky got traded to the LA Kings in, I believe, 1991 or 92 while I was living there. And my parents didn't have enough money to put me into hockey because they were 
you know, surviving artists. So <laughs> they didn't have the money for that. So I dreamed about becoming a hockey player and it just kind of engulfed my teenage years because it's a very, very hard thing to do. So when we came back to Canada after the Martin Luther earthquake in 94 in LA, it was finally the chance for me to play hockey because it's so cheap here because it's, it's religion essentially. And I was starting to play a couple of years late because usually to become a pro hockey player, you have to start like skating at around three or four years old. Now I learned how to skate at 10 and within six years was one of the top junior players. That's ages 16 mm. to 20 in the whole country. So wow. I managed to eventually play pro hockey, but my career was so accelerated. I had, it was a very, very big, big jump. And then I had a couple bad injuries that essentially made me decide at 22 to stop playing hockey because I wasn't quite at the NHL level. I was uh, two leagues just under the NHL level. I had some nice contract offers for Europe for the, for the professional leagues there, which is a very nice, very nice lifestyle. But I'm the kind of person who does something to be the best or nothing at all. So not making it to the NHL and seeing my NHL dream kind of like fade off, I knew I had to do something else. Now, throughout that time, I continued to study at college because I was supposed to go play for the University of Maine and NCAA hockey. So I ended up not doing that, playing pro instead. And I still went to college through distance education as a pro hockey player. Managed to study in biomechanics at university, which is obviously mathematics, but more on the physical and, and, and athletic performance side of things. And that allowed me to, from 22 to 27, 28, essentially have a very illustrious career in human performance. Obviously, my athletic background and contacts helped me go quite fast in that career. But I essentially became a chief of human performance for some of the Canadian Olympic teams. For example, in biathlon, I went to three Olympics as chief of human performance. So how does that bring me to real estate? Is it just essentially, I was a passive investor through that. I was always kind of dabbling in finance and real estate, obviously, from mathematics and I realized in my late 20s that I'd only gone into the human performance and kind of preventive medicine career as a way to transition out of hockey because transitioning from a pro athlete to kind of a normal career in life is a very hard thing to do. There's a lot of research on that. And athletes have a lot of trouble doing that because the, the role and the identity is so strong in society. So I realized that I'd only done that because it was a way for me to, to, to transition. So I just said to myself, hey, what is it that I really want to do for the rest of my life? What am I really passionate about? What's something that won't allow me to hit a ceiling? And it all came down to real estate, essentially. And I went all in in that, started a company, started an investment banking firm in real estate without any real professional experience and scaled that within three and a half years to doing over $100 million in transactions annually. And that was essentially the beginning of my now over tenure in, in real estate investing. That's a pretty remarkable journey from LA to hockey to investment banking to real estate. That's very interesting. And today, if we're talking about assets, what assets are you purchasing? Is it mainly multifamily or are you purchasing other investment vehicles or other asset classes? So I'm, I'm very big into niches and, and focus. So, you know, over 10 years ago, when I started real estate investing, I decided to attack the multifamily niche. That's always the one that I preferred just because of the risk return, uh, kind of the way that it's dressed up, you know. So I, I've always only been multifamily as a professional in real estate investing and obviously, well, personally, pretty much the same thing. So I'm doing personally heavy value add, like very, very heavy value add stuff and a lot of opportunistic stuff. So buying, say, a warehouse that I can 
knock down and rebuild 42 units on it and stuff like that. So that's very, that's not light to moderate value add, that's heavy value add, which it's higher risk, obviously, because you put down more money, but if executed right, the potential for the rewards, the potential for the returns for investors and for you is probably very, very significant. Yeah. Well, I mean, even recently, like we, we do a lot of stuff, like we'll buy a seven unit property for say four hundred, four thirty thousand dollars and then we'll put in six to $800,000 in renovations in that property. So we're essentially rebuilding the property and just keeping the, the structure and the foundation. So that's the value add stuff. And then the opportunistic stuff is really more like land-based cost arbitrage, you know, trying to rezone stuff and add stories, lift, you know, properties up or just knock them down and rebuild. And yeah, I mean, the returns are, I mean, they're absolutely crazy, but the risk is also there. And it's very, you know, it's very stressful stuff. You have to have an organization to, yeah. be able to take care of that. You have to have the expertise and the knowledge and the team. And investor-wise, it's mostly us. So we're, we're actually three partners, three buddies, me and two guys who are two friends. One's a general contractor slash engineer and the other one's a radiologist. So we're three buddies who wanted to kind of do this, to have fun and to do projects that we're passionate about and also have kind of more of a bigger why behind what we're doing, not just the money. Like we didn't need to do this to make money. We, we're already all, you know, we're already making a killing in what we do elsewhere. So, so yeah, it's mostly, it's probably 90% of our money in the deals at the moment with a couple of friends and family as, you know, more maybe passive investors, but we're functioning much more as kind of like a family office for ourselves, essentially. Interesting. Very interesting. So, and your main focus is multifamily. You invest with a handful of people, mainly you and your two other partners. Interesting. So I want to kind of shift the conversation a bit and talk about the strategy portion of what you do. And we touched a little bit about on real estate financial engineering. Now I'm not an engineer, graduated from MIT, where I had a lot of respect to engineers they were the smart ones in the room. It was not the the MBA guys. We were not the smartest kids in the room. I remember how smart those kids were from engineering school. I'm super curious, what is real estate financial engineering? Well, just to make it clear, people usually, most people who work in real estate financial engineering are not considered as engineers. Of course. They don't have the title, right? That's that's a very important thing to we don't we don't want to be stealing the title of engineer from the engineer. <laughs> But essentially, real estate and financial engineering is, it's very advanced finance and mathematics where what we're doing is we're focusing on two things. We're focusing, number one, on maximizing returns. So generating what everyone knows as alpha. The proper term is Jensen's alpha. And obviously, mitigating risk, risk management. So it's really the intersection of those two things. And it encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. So Obviously, when we talk about underwriting and financial modeling, that's like the beginning of real estate financial engineering. That's like level one. And then once you start playing with a whole bunch of different capital stacks, and not just capital stacks and weighted average cost of capital, but also timing and mismatching and the risk management with all of that stuff, that's when you start entering real estate financial engineering and applying, obviously, more advanced statistics and start using, I mean, the beginning would be VBA and Excel and then going towards maybe some Python, but essentially it's the overarching methodology of encompassing acquisitions and portfolio management in real estate using that in a holistic way. So using all those different types of, you know, underwriting, capital stack. So that's really the way that we do real estate financial engineering. And 
I'll give you an example of, you know, basic real estate financial engineering that people do will be, they'll underwrite a property, right? They'll do a bit of financial mm -hmm. modeling before buying, say, mm -hmm. a 200 unit property. That's like going to the gym once, right? So <laughs> underwriting is like going to the gym once. Financial engineering is like living at the gym and it's like a habit. So for example, if you're going to do financial engineering, well, then you also have to, in your underwriting model, not just randomly plug in your inflation projections and your rent increase projections and future interest rates, you actually have to model those using statistics. Like, so a Monte Carlo simulation might be a way to, to begin to do that. And then you also have to do all that underwriting and that financial modeling, not only ex ante, which is before the transaction, but also ex post and continually update your model and back test and update that model with regards to what has actually happened versus what you projected. And that's when you start entering the world of financial engineering. So I think it's something that obviously the word is kind of, you know, mythological and maybe a bit intimidating for people, but everyone in the real estate investment world already does it a little bit. And what I'm pushing as an educator is that people do it more and use it more as a process and a habit rather just as a, a kind of a, a one-off here and there and, you know, little parts here and there that are not perfectly applied. So I think every investor should at least have a solid foundation of financial engineering and real estate. That doesn't mean they have to become, you know, they don't have to use Python and learn how to do Monte Carlo simulations. But still, I think as multifamily has become a much more sophisticated and competitive asset class, I think even smaller, small cap and, and syndicators and mom and pop investors. And I think people need to learn how to do this stuff in a more scientific way, at least. And how can they do that? It sounds like you have all the right tools in place. How can someone learn what you do and basically take their underwriting to the next level? Well, I mean, there are universities that teach financial engineering and stuff like that. So Obviously, the best thing would be to go to university and do like a master's in financial engineering. The problem is that it's not always very applied, right? So it's very theoretical. It's very academic. So it's not necessarily applied to actually how the real estate world works and actual right. transactions. So this kind of sounds kind of cheesy, but that's why five years ago, I founded the Emrex College, which is a different company from Emrex, which is essentially an educational institution for everyday real estate investors and syndicators, whether it be on GPLP side. And in the last five years, and in, in just in Quebec, which is the equivalent of a state in the US, Quebec is a state, a province of 8 million people, which is like not even the size of Miami. But just in the last five years, we've had over 5,000 multifamily investors and property owners come through our school, especially through our most popular program, which is a certificate in real estate financial engineering. So it's a very solid and strong introduction and foundational program to real estate financial engineering. I'm actually right now building that program up in English, translating everything, translating also, adapting all the specifics to the U.S., mm -hmm. which is, you know, the various tax issues and the financing issues, which are a bit different than Canada. But essentially, I hope by the end of this year, by the end of 2021, we'll have the certificate in place for Americans. Very interesting. Yeah, I have to say that when it comes to underwriting, I definitely see various of underwriting. And of course, none of them are even remotely in financial engineering. But it's interesting to see when you're asking sponsors, how did you get to three, four, two percent rent increases? 
How did you come up with that debt? Did you just like playing golf? Oh, the wind's going that way. Only there's no wind in real estate. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So part of what we do, for instance, because it's really easy to fall into that trap of industry standard is 3% rent growth. Right. 3% that has been what sponsors were using five, six, seven years ago. How is this still the same, especially since we see where the market is going? And so one way of doing it, if you still don't, you know, of course, learning how to do financial engineering is great. But if you're still not there, at least use some, there's softwares out there and we're using Axiometrics, which is AI based. So we have projections on the submarket and also the property level when it comes to concessions, rent increases, there are many things, you know, and of course it's a little bit expensive, but there are many things you can look at and not just use your hunch, your gut feeling, which could be very dangerous. It could be very dangerous. And I think, you know, industry standards, rules of thumb, averages. Those are yeah. very, very, very dangerous things. Dangerous. The deeper you go into financial engineering, the more you realize how dangerous they are. I mean, <laughs> we could cite the 2008 financial crisis was in part thanks to a bunch of really bad real estate fin- financial engineers, not real estate financial engineers, but financial engineering. So, I mean, it's like leverage. It's always kind of a double-edged sword where you have to be careful right. what you're doing. I always like to use the example or the the allegory of the six-foot man who drowned in the lake that was on average five feet deep. I believe that's always a great way to image how dangerous industry standards and averages and rules of thumb can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I wanted to discuss with you is your process of how you were able to scale, how you were able to close on 30 deals in 15 months, which is pretty remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Painfully. Yes, I thought so. But I really want to understand from you, I'm sure you have an amazing process, regardless of the size of the deal, contract negotiation is more or less the same. Due diligence, there's not a huge gap between 12 units to 1,200 units with the exception maybe of walk-in units, which may take a week longer, but the fundamentals are pretty much the same. So when it comes to the process, what process do you have in place that allowed you to scale and to close so many deals in a short period of time? It's kind of a funny situation or story. Not one to posture, but I mean, with the amount of experience and knowledge that I have, I'd say for the first probably... 20 to 25 deals. It was just like all sheer talent and experience and knowledge and grit. And I mean, I hired a portfolio director two months ago who was with the the Bank of Montreal capital markets sector, who's used to doing very, very, you know, high level stuff. And we hired him full time. He came to work with us. And after like a week, he said to me, he's like, I don't understand how any human being did what you did in the last two years. Like this is (laughs) This is ridiculous. So there's a part of that. And I don't want to be someone who, who sounds like I, I'm posturing or anything like that because I'm really not. But it was a very painful experience in truth. And I'd say that at first there was no process. And that's why it was so painful. Because essentially what happened was in June of 2019, it was my birthday. And I was I decided to go to breakfast all by myself. No kids, no wife, no employees. Like just, you know, just like... By yourself for your birthday? Yeah, like 
just in the morning though, just in the morning, because it was a weekday. So I was like, I owe myself a couple hours, you know? So I have a pretty high speed life. So I was like, I owe myself a couple of hours of like just chilling. So as I'm doing that, I'm waiting for my breakfast, my Facebook alert comes on and I'm in a private group with the alumni of, of, of real estate investors who studied at the MREX college. And one of them is a broker and he says, hey, I have a pocket listing. It's a seven unit apartment building, blah, blah, blah. So I let a couple of minutes go by and you know I'm very big on not competing with our students because I'm not there to use our students as a platform for me to invest. Yeah. For me, I, I'm an educator. When I'm educating people, I'm there to educate them. I'm not there to work on top of their backs. So I let a bit of time pass and no one's commenting on the, on the listing. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'll take a look at it. So I take a look at it. The brokers also become a bit of a friend of mine. So, so I'm like, oh, this is pretty, actually pretty interesting. So I make an offer on the property just for, you know, just for laughs and giggles and, you know, just to maybe pull his tail a bit and make a long story short after like a month and a half, I realize I'm like, geez, like I'm so far in the process now that I actually have to buy the property. Like, otherwise he'll just be pissed off at me for wasting his time. <laughs> and because I didn't want it, I was able to negotiate one hell of a deal. So it was like too good to let go. Now at this time, you have to realize I'd only been a passive investor up to that point. I was an investment professional, but I didn't want to own any properties. And I was kind of the school of thought where I'm spending 14, 15 hours a day as a professional, like essentially like someone making hamburgers. Well, at night, I don't want to eat hamburgers, right? So that's yeah, why I was buying yeah. properties, right? So I'm too far down the road. My ego is like, you know, you have to buy it. So essentially, I call up one of my buddies who's an engineer and a general contractor who I knew already had a couple properties in that city because it was a city that I didn't live in. But it was a city that demographically and economically, I had already researched a lot and was very, very bullish on it. So he's like, okay, let's do this. I invite one of my other buddies in the deal. I'm like, hey, let's do this. And then because of that, another broker buddy who was also in the alumni group was like, hey, I have this other deal. Now that you're buying, would you take a look at it? And it was a pretty funky deal. Like it was a 10 unit property. It had just been foreclosed. The seller had actually taken it back because he had vendor financed the buyer. So he foreclosed on the buyer essentially. And he was willing to finance 490,000 out of $540,000. So I was like, that's an easy transaction. Let's do it. <laughs> and that just kind of created like a ripple effect where obviously I'm very well known in the industry and the market. So I guess within like a couple of weeks, everyone's like, oh, Nikolai is now buying properties himself. That's crazy. So then people just like started sending me deals and I'm like, oh, I can't say no to that one. I can't say no to that one. <laughs> and then you end up with like three, four properties in like a one mile radius. And I'm like, okay, I was already bullish on this overall market. I'm very bullish on this micro part of the market, the downtown area, which for some reason had completely been forgotten for the last 25 years. And I'm a contrarian. So that's why I don't like industry standards and, and averages either because I'm a contrarian. So I'm like, okay, no one's invested here for 20 years. This area of the market's in the dumps. I've already bought four properties. How can I de-risk these properties? Well, I'll just buy everything, right? I'll apply a monopoly effect, buy everything in a two-mile radius, do heavy value add on all of these properties and not wait for the market to appreciate mm -hmm. and to revitalize. I'll revitalize it myself. And that eventually brought me to buy more and more properties. And then obviously as that happens, well, then I'm used to building companies. So, you know, we've scaled, we're vertically integrated. We were a full general contractor. 
Now, two years down the road, we have 15 full-time employees, portfolio director. We have, you know, superintendent, full construction company, and we manage all our properties in-house. We hired a lawyer who was specialized in property law and tenant law. And we use a lot of tools like Monday, Slack, mm -hmm. and uh, Akamba for accounting. And that's essentially how we've done that. So now the growing pains are getting towards their end now. And I mean, 30 properties, 35 properties, I can't even remember how much we're at in 15 months. I think we'll probably double and triple that, you know, in the next couple of years. So That's amazing. And it's always interesting to see how a company is growing and scaling and you find all those tools and they don't have to be even that expensive. So you can help creating a process and push it through the different channels. We're using Airtable and basically we have about seven to, well, depending on when we're hitting the PSA, but about actually 13 different stages where we do neighborhood analysis first. If it's in the wrong side of town, if it's in a bad area, we're not even looking at it. Then discussion with the broker, initial analysis and discussion with the PM and have the PM tour and send us some numbers and then getting numbers from the property tax consultant. And so we're kind of going through line by line. That's the only way to basically control everything that is happening because you're going to forget when you're, we're looking at 30 deals right now, there's no way to remember what we're doing unless we have everything basically set up. And I, I love technologies. And obviously that's the way, you know, you got to use technology if you want to scale, create a process. People and process. That's like essentially yeah. the two things that allow you to scale. You really need the right people and you can have the best process in the world. Like I, I know the E-Myth, the book E-Myth pushes mm -hmm. that a lot. But unfortunately, the E-Myth is also a bit of a myth in a lot of different types of businesses. I agree. You, you can't just McDonald's it all the time. Like I totally agree. Very high level people. I'm much more of the school of, say, Jim Collins with good to grave and stuff like that, where number one, you got to get the right people and then get them on the bus and then have them in the right seats. And then that's where the process is going to support those people and allow them to do a better job. So obviously, you need to have like an ERP, like, you know, whether it be Airtable, Monday, Asana, Reich, whatever it is, you have to have an ERP and you have to have process in place. But I think that you can't let that get away from the importance of the people that you have. I think that's, Absolutely. Uh, that's the key. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Nikolai, we have arrived to our last part, which is the lightning round questions. Five quick questions about you. We can start with your favorite hobby. My favorite what is it? hobby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you have any time for any hobbies. I'd say it's business. Other than business, probably cars. <laughs> no. Yeah. Cars. Okay. Do you like to race race cars? Cars. I'm just a big car geek. You know, I, mm -hmm. I think I'm still that five-year-old kid, you know, growing up in LA who saw all the hot rod culture and the low rider culture mm -hmm. and then also the high-end culture of like, you know, the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris and the stars. So I think growing up in LA gave me that you know that car passion yeah i can definitely relate to that i'm a huge car person myself and i know it's surprising to some people because they don't think i don't know women are, can be into cars but i'm very very much into cars i it's a beast I, I i love cars also all right what's the one thing that people don't know about you the one thing they don't know about me probably two things that i'm actually a very very good poet and that mm -hmm. i've probably written 
thousands of lines of poetry, and but I speak a bit of Mandarin Chinese. Oh wow, very interesting. Do you write poems in Chinese, or you're not there no. yet? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't write anything in Chinese. Maybe in a bit of Pinyin, but not in actual traditional Chinese writing. All right, awesome, Nikolai. What do you wish you had known when you just started investing in real estate? What I wish I had known, probably nothing, because I, when I started investing, <laughs> I, I was already pretty far ahead. I'd say I would have probably just wished, though, personally, to be more aggressive younger,、mm. because I was so focused on building businesses and was a bit of a passive investor in real estate. I was so aggressive in the entrepreneurship world and the business world. I probably could have hedged that and been a bit more aggressive in the investment world. Yeah, so that's probably what, what that would be. Interesting. All right. Fourth question is: What's your number one advice to high net worth individuals and family offices that want to scale their portfolio and grow in 2021? I'd say definitely people and knowledge. I think、mm. family offices, especially in the real estate world, and I worked with two family offices personally as sort of their real estate arm, or at least to get their their real estate going. And you know, not to knock anyone in the family office world, but they're mostly finance people. Right, they're、mm-hmm. mostly finance people and stock people, or business people. So I think for them, the way to scale is to find you know people like me, people like yourself, who are very experienced and knowledgeable in the real estate world, and try and leverage that knowledge and those people. That's probably the fastest way to scale because we all know that family offices. Their problem is not capital; it's allocating capital, and that's where they really need you know people like us, and they can、Absolutely. really. You know, Stand on people like us for sure. Yep, absolutely. All right, Nikolai, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and learn about your company and what you do? You can go on the Mrex's website, so mrex m r e x dot co. Otherwise, Mrex is on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So it's very easy to contact me and. If you want to talk shop or talk real estate, I'm I'm always interested, always open to debating and pushing the knowledge base. So yeah. All right, awesome, Nikolai. Thank you so so much for being here on the show. It was really great connecting with you. I've seen you a lot around, and and I'm really happy that we had a chance to connect. Appreciate it.、Uh, the likewise. All right, awesome. Well, to you, the listeners, I hope that you're leaving this conversation a little bit more knowledgeable about real estate and more inspired because this story is great. Be bold, guys. Be great. Keep moving forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. dot